So if you'd like to turn there. The media has portrayed Christians, I think, in general, and and particularly fundamentalist Christians, as either pathetic weaklings or as wicked hypocrites. In his book, Christians in the Movies, A Century of Saints and Sinners, Peter Dans has written that fundamentalist Christians have the distinction of having been almost uniformly portrayed negatively as charlatan preachers, unenlightened dupes, or more recently, as mean-spirited hypocrites. Karen, Karen's always enjoyed stories about doctors and medicine, and she used to like to watch the TV show ER. I don't like those kind of shows, and, and, but I would sit and watch with her anyway. But as time went on, I grew to despise that show. Uh, and, but for a particular reason, because of its anti-Christian propaganda, every Christian character I noticed over time was either a nut or a hypocrite. And so I stopped watching the show. I said, I am not watching the show anymore. And she, she stopped watching it too. <clears throat> and I think, if I remember correctly, I sent a letter to NBC complaining about it. <clears throat> now, I am not saying that there aren't any nutty, hypocritical Christians. There are. I'm saying most of the Christians I've known, and I've known many, have not been. Uh, neither nutty nor hypocritical. Nutty, maybe. Hypocritical. <laughs> but Hollywood and academia and, and the chimera of an academic Hollywood acts like they are. They mock us, particularly since the late 60s, and particularly since the movie MASH made it popular and profitable to mock us. Before that, it, it wasn't profitable. But look, mocking Christians didn't begin in the late 60s. It began a lot, a long time before that. The very term Christian was coined by enemies of the faith. It was a jibe, an insult, a mockery. The Apostle Peter, in the decades following the resurrection of Jesus, wrote, you must understand that scoffers will come, scoffing and, and following their own evil desires. That will be particularly true, he says, in the last days. We'll be looking at the letter in which Peter gave that warning. It's in a passage that concerns Christ's second coming, a passage to which the church gives special attention during Advent season and has done so for more than a millennium. See, the church has long thought that the best way to prepare to celebrate Christ's first coming is by getting ready for his second. And getting ready for his second coming is just what Peter has in mind when he writes this letter to his friends. We need to lean into the future to appreciate the past. So let's read our text. It's 2 Peter chapter 3. We're going to read verses 8 through 15. And I'll read just that first phrase of verse 15. <clears throat> but do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, 
What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. So in Peter's day, people were mocking Christians. How about that? And Christians were feeling stung. One of their favorite taunts had to do with Christ's return. So they would say, where is this return, he promised. What happened? Did he get held up? Did he change his mind? You Christians are always saying that he's coming back to change everything, but nothing ever changes goes on the same year after year. Surely, if he were coming back, he would be here by now. Christians were finding it hard to respond. Their non-Christian friends were making them feel foolish. And they themselves were wondering, why hadn't Christ come back? What was taking so long? Maybe you feel a little like that today. Where is this coming, he promised. Maybe you're even having doubts. Well, Peter has an answer to that question. Actually, he has a couple of them. One is this. This is verse 8. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years are like a day. Now, Peter said, don't forget this. Or another translation might go, don't lose sight of this. Because it's something that's easy to lose sight of. We forget that God is not like us. He made us in his image, and we've been trying to return the favor ever since. But he's not like us. For one thing, he experiences time vastly differently than we do. Peter says, with the Lord, or literally beside the Lord, in his time zone, a day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. Peter, like many other Jewish writers, was quoting Psalm 90, verse 4. We're going to sing that in a few minutes in a hymn by Isaac Watts. That psalm captured the imagination of many ancient Jews. Some apocalyptic writers even tried to use that verse to calculate the the date of the day of judgment. The problem with that is the word as, or in the NIV, the word like. A day is like a thousand years. Neither Peter nor the psalmist was saying that one of the Lord's days equals a thousand human years. Rather, like we say that one human year equals seven dog years. That's not what he was saying. Instead, he was saying that time is elastic in God's hands. It's silly putty. When I was a kid, we used to play with silly putty. You know, you bounce it. You'll do all kinds of things with it. But we like to stretch it out and flatten it and then press it against our favorite newspaper comic strip. And then when we lifted it up, the ink from the newspaper was perfectly imprinted on the back of the Silly Putty, right? You all did this. Then, of course, we would stretch it out, and Nancy and Sluggo would grow incredibly fat or gigantically tall. What we did with Silly Putty, God can do with time. A thousand years can pass, and he's no older. He doesn't get bored. He doesn't feel pressured. He's never late. As he told us through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord. In his time, 
I will do this swiftly. A thousand years go by, and earth wonders what could possibly be taking so long. And then God acts, and what it takes a thousand years to do, he crams into a single day. Peter knows that God is like that, and he knows he's going to act. He hasn't forgotten his promise. He's not an octogenarian with memory problems. Two thousand years that passed have not weighed on him in the least. He hasn't aged. He hasn't lost interest. Time has not made him forget. He will act, and when he does, things will happen so quickly they'll make our heads spin. So Peter's first response to these mockers is that they don't understand God's nature. He's not like us. He's not imprisoned in time. He doesn't experience reality in temporal succession as we do. He experiences it in its entirety. He's not only, the theologians tell us, in all places at once. He is in all times at once. He lives in the eternal now. Now, Peter further responds to the mockers' ridicule by pointing out that they don't understand God's character. They don't know his nature that he exists in a different way than we do, but they don't understand his character either. If they knew God at all, they would understand why all these years have gone by. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. If some understand slowness, he is patient. And particularly, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. When Christ returns, everything will change. When that happens, as C.S. Lewis said many years ago, when that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks out on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade, Lewis said in one of his radio talks during the Second World War. God is going to invade all right. But what's the good of saying you're on his side then? When you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something that never entered your head to conceive comes crashing in. For this time, it will be God without disguise. Something so overwhelming that it will strike either irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It'll be too late then to choose your side. There's no use saying you choose to lie down when it's become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing it will be the time when we discover which side we've really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Peter's mockers were making fun of the promised coming because it was taking so long. But Peter knew that when Christ comes back, there will be no more time to decide to choose God. If it seems to us that he delays, then we must attribute that delay to his longing for every soul he's made to come back to its father. See, Peter knew that God is a softy. Now, maybe you object to that description of God, but what would you call a person who goes to incredible lengths, to the ultimate degree of self-abasement, to taking the form of a servant, to sacrificing himself for the sake of people who don't want him and don't even respect him? A softy? The original bleeding heart? A lover? There will never come a time when God loses patience. He can't be other than he is. But there will come a time when the curtain falls and the author walks out onto the stage. No one will be calling him a softy then. 
Some may say that he's unfair, that he didn't wait long enough, but it'll ring untrue even in their own ears. If a thousand opportunities would suffice, a thousand opportunities would be given. But when no number of opportunities will suffice, he's neither unfair nor untimely to call an end. Peter, who had himself famously failed the Lord, understood God's patience. He understood that like Jesus, God has none at all, no patience at all with sin. But he has endless patience with sinners. He condemns sin unequivocally. He pardons sinners joyfully. But if the sinner will not be separated from his sin, if no amount of time or number of opportunities will suffice to bring about a change of mind, God will not defer creation's joy forever. A change is coming. The curtain will fall. The author will walk out onto the stage. Verse 10 uses common terms to convey what has to be an inconceivable experience. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare or will be discovered. When Peter was writing, most thinkers believed that the material world was composed of a small number of fundamental elements of water, of earth, wind, and fire. If that sounds like a funk band from the 1970s, now you know where they got that name. We've come a long ways, haven't we? Now most thinkers believe the material universe is composed of four elemental forces, the strong and weak nuclear forces, electromagnetism, and gravity. What people will believe in the future, who knows? What Peter is saying is that the universe as we know it is going to change cataclysmically. This will not be, or at least I don't think it will be, some do, due to atomic weapons or global warming because it's not simply a terrestrial disaster. It includes the heavens and the earth. Now, Peter's been reassuring and explaining the delay in Christ's return to Christians who are being taunted about it and perhaps suffering doubts themselves. But now he moves from explaining to exhorting. We know why God delays, but we also know that the delay is only temporary. Christ is going to return and everything is going to change. In the light of that inevitable change, this is verse 11, in the light of God's character and Christ's return, what kind of people ought you to be? That's Peter's question to us. Our question to ourselves is, are we those kinds of people? Peter wants his friends to live hopefully in the light of God's character and in the shadow of Christ's return. But what does living hopefully look like in a world like ours? Well, to answer that question, I think it might help us to think what living hopelessly looks like in a world like ours. And I'm afraid it looks like most Americans. When people live hopelessly, they dismiss the future as unimportant, which really means they dismiss themselves as unimportant, and they look for their fulfillment in the moment. People who live hopelessly have little patience. They can't endure anything for very long. They invest their lives in distractions. They go, sometimes they're driven from one distraction to the next, preoccupied with meaningless pursuits and always afraid that they're going to run out of distractions and have to face themselves. It's a sad life. It's our life as Americans for the most part, but it's not the life Jesus has in mind for us. 
He wants us to live hopefully. And Peter knows what that looks like. It looks like this, verse 11, like a holy and godly life. Now, I know what happens when people hear that. They think, if I have to choose between a distracted life and a holy and godly life, I think I'll take the distracted life. Sounds like more fun. But that's because you don't understand what a holy and godly life is. If holiness, being set apart to honor and serve God, and godliness, the etymology of that word means something like, well, it means something which gives good signs. That is, a life that points to God and how good he is. That's godliness. If that sounds tiresome or boring to you, you've misunderstood it. This is Jesus' kind of life. There's nothing legalistic or drab about it. It's a rich life that finds its excitement in reality, not in distraction. It's a shared life, shared with God, first of all, but then with others. And it's a meaningful life because it gets caught up in what God is doing and joins him and thereby makes a difference in the world. It lives simultaneously in the peace and joy of God's kingdom and in the pain and suffering of this world. The person living this kind of life is God's undercover agent, if you will, in his or her school or workplace, family, neighborhood. It's a life that makes God look good to others. That's the kind of life we ought to be living in the light of God's character and in the light of Christ's return. And I should add, in the light of the fact that the world as we know it isn't going on forever. Peter reminds us of that a second time in verse 12, that that day will bring about the destructions of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. The biblical writers, not just Peter, clearly foresaw an end to life on this planet as it's been lived. Life as we've known it. A power will someday be unleashed that will destroy the world. Perhaps we'll even be the ones to unleash it. But whether or not that's true, the heavens and the earth, as we know them, will be destroyed. The Greek word that's translated destroyed means something like loosed or untied. The four forces that comprise all matter and energy, which God tied together in creation, the strong and weak nuclear force, electromagnetism, and gravity, will be untied. And the universe will become something else. It will melt away like a dream, to borrow again from Lewis, and something else, something it never entered your head to conceive, will come crashing in. Or perhaps not something else, but someone else. If you're thinking people have been saying that kind of thing for the last 2,000 years and it still hasn't happened, then you've missed Peter's point entirely. If you say, I'm not going to live long enough probably to see that, I disagree. Of course you will. You will live long enough to die. And on that day, the world that you have known will melt away like a dream. And something else, something that never entered your head to conceive, will come crashing in. Something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us has any choice left. See, whether you and I are part of that generation that's living on earth when Christ comes back or not doesn't really make a difference. Maybe you won't be here when the four forces of the natural universe are untied, but you yourself will one day be untied. The cords that tie your soul to your body will be pulled loose like a shoestring. 
and the world as you have known it will change. To the person who doesn't know God, that thought is terrifying. And he escapes it in distractions. But not the person who's learned to trust Jesus. If the heavens and earth are untied, he knows that there will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness, our home. And it'll be a perfect home. It'll fit like a glove fits a hand. And he knows that when his body is untied from his soul, he'll have a new body, a spiritual body, divinely produced and perfectly suited to his new life. A resurrected body for a resurrected world. See, the whole world is going to be resurrected. Now, here's the thing. It's the person who's living with this kind of hope, who's leaning into the future, looking forward to the day of God, who can best look backward to the birth of Christ. That person is filled with wonder and joy at the love that sent Jesus that first Christmas. Because he or she understands what's in store when God sends his son the second time. They're grateful for what God did in sending his son the first time. They know that when Jesus came the first time, as the author of Hebrews tells us, it was to take away the sins of many people, their own sins. But they also know that he will appear a second time. Not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, if you haven't trusted God to give you a new life, how are you ever going to trust him to give you a new world? Have you trusted him? And if not, are you ready to? Now's the time. If you are a Christian, God wants you to have a godly life. I mentioned that that word means something which gives good signs. Is your life a good sign? Is it a clear sign? Where does it point? Is it clean? Is it attractive? Last month, we replaced the sign down on the corner of Old 27. Some of the letters, the sign was probably, I don't know, 10 years old. Some of the letters had cracked or worn off. The attached service times had been blown down by the wind. The signboard was coming apart. It's no longer a good sign. If anything, what it signaled to people was that those folks at Lockwood Church have ceased to care. But now it's been restored and renewed. So let me ask you, what kind of sign is your life right now? When people read your life, and they do, does it say that God is loving and patient and strong and good? If not, what needs to happen for your life to give good signs. If you know that what that is, will you cooperate with God in making it happen? Will you allow him to restore and renew you? If you will, would you tell him that right now? Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, a good sign at the right time is a lifesaver. I pray that you'll make our lives good signs that point to you.
help people who are lost find you. And Lord, if the the letters on our sign are worn and faded, if we're cracked and aren't pointing the right direction anymore, I pray that you'll fix us. I know you'll let us be a part of that. So I ask for your grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing.